0: If you have a copy of Scripture, I'd encourage you to take it out. We're going to turn our attention to God's Word now. Uh, If you don't have a copy of Scripture, we um, would love for you to get one. Uh, There should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you, and um, you are welcome to use that. If you don't own a copy of Scripture, you're welcome to take that home with you. That's our uh, gift to you this morning. So glad that you... um, are here and um, and uh, we want you to see for yourself what uh, what we're looking at, what we're studying, what we're learning from in God's Word. Uh, we're continuing this morning in our series in the Book of Acts, and so um, you can open up to Acts. We're in chapter 18 this morning. We are slowly, surely making our way through it. We are actually in the home stretch. And so, as you're turning there, I thought it would be helpful just to um, let you know that we are going to uh, wrap up our study. Um, this has been an incredible book. There's so much. Uh, packed into this, there's so much to learn and to see, um, but as we approach the end, there are some repeated themes, like some of the things that we've seen already, some of the things that we're going to see, They're gonna we're going to start to kind of like revisit some of those, and so it's going to feel like we're kind of speeding up here at the end, we're going to take on some bigger chunks, we're going to kind of focus in on, on little pieces and parts, and so just wanted to kind of give you a preview of that, so in the coming weeks when you see us like kind of, wait, we didn't talk about the, those verses or those, we're not like trying to just skip over, it's not valuable. Um, but we want to get and glean the most out of it as we can, and um, and so we've kind of broken it up in a way that I think we are going to do that. So after this week, we'll have seven more weeks in the Book of Acts that'll take us through the end of June, and then we've got some um, some other things in the works for the rest of the summer and and all of that. But I just wanted to let you know that you know we've been in Acts for a long time, and we are. Um, we're getting through it. It's, uh, it's so good. I love this book. Many of you have mentioned um, just the ways that God has used it and um, the things that he's shown you in his word. Um, uh, I think for me, it's been just, a, a, just such a good, good a reminder of the power of God as we see the, uh, the church continue to grow and we see the way that God is leading and God is working and how all of these things are connecting uh, together. And so this morning um, is kind of more of what we've been seeing, Paul is taking the gospel to yet another new city. This time, he's in the city of Corinth. And if I could, I want to kind of frame up our, our, our study this morning uh, with this idea um, of, of kind of a new normal. Are you, um, have you ever experienced a new normal in your life? Um, sometimes, I think new normals are intentional. Other times, I think new normals are unintentional. Um, an example of a intentional new normal is uh, maybe you decide that you're going to, you know, kind of take on some healthier habits and you want to uh, maybe exercise or at least move a little bit more so you begin to walk um, uh, in the mornings. And then this becomes kind of a new normal for you. It feels out of place or, or um, you know, uh, like something's missing if you don't get that morning walk in. That's an intentional good new normal. Sometimes I think new normals uh, maybe happen unintentionally and then are not always great. Uh, One of the things that I think has become a new normal is our inability of how to kind of greet each other after two years of trying not to. Have anyone else experienced that? Like you kind of go in for the shake, but then, you know, you can tell that they're a little... Nervous or like, are we fist bumping here? Like, what are we doing? You know, like I used to give a lot of hugs. I, I miss that, and so I, um, you know, I've started to do more of that. But cautious, like I'm just trying to feel people out and kind of see where where we're at. And so I think that's a little bit of an unintentional sort of, you know, at times awkward new normal. And I, I hope that we can get past that. Let's just let's kind of you know move move in that direction and, uh, and 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 kind of get back to being able. I just miss greeting people and 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 making people know and feel um, welcomed and and, uh, and, and, and in that way. well, What we're going to see this morning in God's word is for God's people, I, I believe this, I think God's word is going to show us this, that, that as someone begins to follow after Jesus and as they begin to operate on what we're going to call God's plan and God's program and they begin to follow him, there's some new normals that are created some norms that, that followers of Jesus should and must have and, and these are things that, that he brings about and that he gives to his people. And the other way that I want to just sort of frame it up this morning is we have to see all of the regular, ordinary, everyday people that God uses. It's so easy, again, to sort of get lost in this and think that people that are in the Bible, if their name's here on these pages, that they wore capes and that they had something that we don't have, and these are just regular, ordinary people. We have to see this, but we're going to see how ordinary people kind of brought into these new norms that God just does some incredible things in and through them. Let's get into God's word and see uh, what we have here this morning. We're in Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse one. It says this, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all of the Jews to leave Rome and he went to see them and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade and he reasoned in the synagogue every sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. All right so sort of the normal uh, rhythm for Paul right he goes to a new place he left Athens where we were with him last week and now he's in Corinth now he finds this Jew named Aquila along with his wife Priscilla and notice something about them God's going to use these these two individuals this this couple here in the church and they are Um, refugees. Did you see that? They were forced to leave Rome because Claudius issued this command that all the Jews had to leave Rome. And so they left the home that they were living in. They're in this new town that they're not from, right? It says Aquila was a native of Pontius. And here they are in Corinth. And God is going to use these two refugees to be the foundation of the church there in Corinth. Just before we even get any further, just a reminder that God can use just about anybody right? That he he chooses often to use some of the least likely people that we would assume. And so hopefully that encourages us in this, that, that God can use all of us in his plan and what he's doing here. He's using these two refugees here. And so Paul is staying with them. They um, share the same trade. Paul kind of alludes to this in several other places, but we haven't seen much of this so far. Paul, in addition to preaching, that's not all he did with his time. He um, kind of made a living or supported his ministry by making tents. And so he constructed, repaired, whatever was kind of involved in that. And he got connected with Aquila and Priscilla and stayed with them because they were all kind of doing this tent making business and trade together. And so Paul, by day, tent maker, by night and on the weekends, he's preaching. He's telling people about Jesus. He's going to the synagogue. He's going to the marketplace. He's doing whatever he can to tell people about Jesus, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks it says, let's continue, verse five. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. Eventually, Silas and Timothy are gonna take more front seat roles, but right now, they're still supporting, right? They're, they're kind of, uh, they're uh, interning, if you will. They're, um, they're there in this place and helping with the mission, and so they're also there with Paul in Corinth. Look what happens, as so often happens in the ministry with Paul in verse six. When they were opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He's speaking here to the Jewish people and he is getting uh, impatient, right? I think that's a fair word we can say that. I mean, he's pretty much done with, he's like, listen, I'm trying to show you, I'm trying to help you and see the truth of what God has been doing for generations and was pointing to and leading to and you're not getting it. You're not listening, you're not seeing. And in fact, you're opposing and reviling. And so he's like, I can't do anything for you. I'm gonna go to those who will listen. And for him there, it was the Gentiles. It was those who... um, were not familiar with these Old Testament or had all these traditions that they were unwilling to give up. And so it says that he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius, Justus, a worshiper of God, and his house was next door to the synagogue. So he's like, I'm gonna go find someone who'll listen. And this, this is a Greek, a worshiper of God. It means someone who was interested in God, but not a Jewish person. This Titius, he led to the Lord and he shared with him the gospel of Jesus and he believed. In addition to him, Crispus, this was the ruler of the synagogue. He also believed in the Lord together with his entire household. Imagine that conversation, right? He goes back to the others and he's like, hey, guys, I know that I'm kind of, you know, leader here and, 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 and in a place of authority here. But I heard something about the Savior and I believe that that is Jesus Christ, and so I know we usually spend a lot of time in, in the Old Testament, but how about we talk about Jesus this week? You know, like, I don't know how well that would have gone over for him in his workplace environment, right? But he believed in the Lord together with his household. And then it kind of, you know, pans out and lets us see the whole situation. But it says, many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Baptized. So many are coming to know Jesus. They're coming to believe in Jesus as the Lord and Savior. They're hearing the gospel. They're believing in it. And they're taking that step of public declaration. They're being baptized. I think it's worth pointing out. I mean, we've seen how many times this is, this outward sign of that inward decision, right? Believers believe. The followers of Jesus believe. And then they take the step of baptism, if you have never been baptized, if you're a follower of Jesus and you've never taken that step, can I just encourage you to take that step of obedience? In a couple of weeks, we're actually gonna have a baptism. We have several people who have expressed interest in that and are planning on being baptized on May 22nd. We would love to see you be baptized if you've never taken that step. That's what believers do. They, they are baptized to show what Jesus has done in their life. And they took this step. So there we see the church being formed I want to show you one more example of, 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 of somebody kind of taking steps of following Jesus. Look down at verse 17. It says, they all seized Sothenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. So not one ruler of the synagogue, but even a second ruler. He was so uh, passionate in his faith and so uh, convinced of his faith that he was even willing to endure a beating there in front of everybody for his belief in Jesus as the savior. And so here we have, we see again, ordinary individuals, regular everyday people taking steps to follow after Jesus. And what we are gonna see this morning is that there are some new norms for those who follow God's plan. Can I show you the first one? I, I think it's this. I think what we see through all of these people is this, is that the new norm for God's people is from, a move from scarcity to generosity. Moving from a place of scarcity to generosity. Let's unpack that a bit. Because um, here's, here's the thing. I don't think we get to see on display much of the picture of scarcity. All right? So I use this word in, in something um, of, uh, you know, that, that, that mindset of what I need and what I need to, you know, to receive, uh, trying to get rather than give. Um, we we're not seeing that present. So you might ask the question, well, how do you know that they were, you know, in, in a place of scarcity? I'm making the assumption because they're people that they are operating, their default operating position is a place of scarcity. See, I believe that, that, that we are born into, like our default operating system is one of scarcity. Scarcity uh, says this, uh, scarcity says, what can I get and how can I protect what I have? I think naturally we have a scarcity mindset, right? Even the way that we're born it's Mother's Day, so moms, you know this too well, right? That little one comes out and they don't care much about your dreams, desires, goals, your need for a nap, uh, your timetable, your schedule, right? From, the, from coming out of the womb, we are all in a scarcity mindset, like, what, I need this now. I want this now. Can you give it to me now? If you don't give it to me now, I'm going to let you know that I want it now, right? And I'm going to keep letting you know until I get it now. And there's this, this mindset, I don't think we really grow out of that. I think in all of us, there's a kind of propensity to ask the question of what can I get and how can I protect what I have? That's what scarcity says. We saw this even in Jesus' own followers and his disciples. After spending all sorts of time with Jesus, they still had this tendency. Maybe you recall when Jesus was with the crowds and he wanted to feed them. He asked the disciples, he said, hey, we need to feed these guys. And the disciples replied, we only have five loaves and two fish. Now at that point, they had seen, miracle after miracle, they had seen Jesus do all sorts of incredible things. Yet, what did they say? We only have five loaves and two fish. Now I'm not trying to like, you know, be too tough on them, but, but that's a scarcity mentality. Like they're with Jesus, Instead, they're not bringing the loves and bishops. Hey, we got this. Can you do anything with this? Right? They're like, well, we only have this. You know, well, you got that, but you also have Jesus. So I think you've got a lot. And so they're, they're, they're in this scarcity mentality. But what we see here is that the new norm for these followers there in Corinth, they're leaving this scarcity mentality and they're moving to a place of generosity. What we see demonstrated certainly by Paul, right? He's leading the way, he's leading the charge in it. He is on this journey with the sole purpose, nothing he's trying to build for himself, the sole purpose of telling people who need to hear the hope of Jesus Christ. And so he's left all that would be comfortable to him, all that's sort of known to him, and he's come to this place to give to them as much as he can, to give away as much as he can of the knowledge of the Lord there in this place. And we see he does this with Aquila and Priscilla. That's the first place that he goes. But it doesn't stop there, notice what happens. Um, Let's look at the end of the chapter. Go to verse 24. There's another Jew who's named Apollos. He's a native of Alexandria, he came to Ephesus. And we get some uh, picture of it. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. So he knows his Bible and he's able to communicate it well. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So he is pointing people to Christ and he's explaining to them and he's showing them that the, that the Savior is Jesus Christ. The, the Messiah has come. His name is Jesus. But notice he was missing something. It's as though he only knew of the baptism of John. He had never been taught about the baptism of the Holy Spirit or even the baptism of Jesus. There was this kind of baptism of, of repentance that he was still preaching and he didn't know. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But notice this, verse 26, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Where did they learn all that from? How did they know? How did they know how to correct this guy that knew the scriptures, was competent and eloquent speaker? Well, they had been poured into. Paul had invested into them. We see in verse 11 that Paul was there in Corinth for a year and six months, 18 months. He was there teaching the people, preaching the word of God discipling them, pouring into them. So they, in turn, were able to then point and pour into, invest into Apollos. And notice what happens next, verse 27. And then when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing the scriptures by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So did you catch the progression there? You have Paul investing into Priscilla and Aquila, and then they in turn were investing into Apollos, who in turn was investing into the people of Achaia. And I believe this, scripture tells us this time and time again, a move that those who follow God's plan that our followers of God move from a scarcity mindset to a mindset of generosity. Generosity. See generosity, scarcity says what can I get and how do I protect what I have? Generosity says what have I been given and how can I use it to invest into others? Generosity is the new normal for followers of Jesus. We see Paul being generous, and in turn, as a result, Aquila and Priscilla are being generous. How are they being generous? Well, they're investing not in their own lives, but into the lives of others. That's generosity. And I think when we hear the word generosity, our mind quickly goes to our money. And money's a great thing to be generous with, but that's not the only thing that we're generous with. One of the ways that we'll often speak about is not kind of original to us, but we'll often consider in thinking about generosity is um, our time, our talent, and our treasure, right? So how are you being generous with your time, with the hours of your week, with the uh, days that you've been given? How are you de- generous with your talents, the skills that God has given you or that you've developed over time, which ultimately still come from God, right? How are you being generous with your treasure, with your financial resources, whatever amount that might be, is there some level of giving that away and being generous with it? I would add to that even a fourth one today, how are you being generous with your testimony? What God has done in your life, how are you taking that and then being generous with that and using that to impact and to invest into the lives of others? See, we've been called to leave a mindset of scarcity and move into a mindset of generosity. This is something that Jesus produces in us. And what this is, this giving away, investing in others, this ultimately is what discipleship is. You know, a really good understanding of discipleship is taking what someone gave us in Christ and turning around and giving it away to somebody else. What has somebody invested into us and how can we turn around and invest that into somebody else? Paul, uh, when he's writing later a letter to Timothy, right? We have kind of intern Timothy. Well, later it's going to be Pastor Timothy. He's going to lead and, and, and be over the church, um, uh, primarily in Ephesus, but some other places as well. But Paul writing to Timothy, he says to Timothy, he says, hey, take what you learned from me and then give that away and trust that to faithful men who will in turn entrust that to others. He says, Timothy, remember how I invested in you. You need to invest in others in such a way that they will in turn be able to invest in other people. And many of us, that is our story. We have people that have invested into our lives. If you are here and you're a follower of Jesus, my guess is that somebody has poured into you and they's invested in you. Actually, let's just see it. Show of hands, how many of you have had somebody else who has invested into you that has advanced your understanding and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? direct result somebody else, right? Almost all of us, or all of us, if you are following Jesus, right? There's somebody who has invested in you. And so as we think about this, this generosity you've been given. So again, the, the generosity mindset says, what have I been given and how can I use it to invest in others? There are some questions that you might wanna consider this morning. The first is this, just kind of specifically, you just raised your hand and said, somebody invested in you. Well, maybe get more specific with that. Here's the first question, who has invested in you? Who's invested in me? I would really encourage you to think back, maybe take some time this week and make a list. Like go back to the beginning. Who first told you about the gospel? Who first told you and helped explain the Bible? Write their name down. Who helped you understand more? Who helped you kind of take some steps that you needed to take? If you've been walking with Jesus for a long time and some of you have, you may put together a pretty long list. Some of you, maybe you're newer in walking with Christ and you don't have many names on that list. Maybe that's just one or it's two, but is there a pastor, is there a parent, is there a friend, is there a coworker, is there a roommate, is there a coach, is there a teacher? Is there somebody who pointed you and invested in you and helped you in your walk and growing in the understanding of Jesus Christ? I think it's good to take stock. Who has invested in me? Then I would take stock in a different way. Here's the second question I would encourage you to ask is who have I invested in? Maybe think for a minute, over your years, who is somebody else that you've invested in, that you've given something away to? And again, some of you, maybe you, you have a whole list and you can think of specific people that you've poured into. Others of you, maybe, maybe that's limited. Maybe you don't have someone yet or you're still working on that but who have you invested in? Then maybe think about the present a little bit more. Who am I investing in? Is there someone that you're currently investing in? And I think sometimes the way that we think about discipleship is it doesn't always have to be this formalized thing. Like we are now in an official discipleship relationship, right? We're gonna meet at Starbucks at 6.30 on Tuesdays and it's gonna look like this. And this is, you know, it's gonna like, and if we don't, you know, Sometimes I think we have to have these like specific parameters about it. It has to do through this thing and then when when we finish this book, then we are done and that is, you know, it's kind of moving on. It's not necessarily, it might just be who, who are you pouring into? And maybe it happens occasionally, maybe it happens regularly, maybe it's someone who's kind of, you seeing all the time, maybe it's someone you see occasionally, but are there some people that you know that God's called you to or you've taken some intentional steps to invest in? Hopefully, if you're a follower of Jesus, there's somebody on that list you have at least one person that you're currently trying and making effort to invest in. And parents, it's a good reminder on Mother's Day, right? Like we are called to invest in our kids, certainly. But I hope in addition to your kids that there's still some other people. Invest in your kids for sure. Like that is the role God has given you. No one can have a greater impact on the lives of your children than you can. No matter what your teenager tells you, right? Like you can still, they're still listening even if they pretend like they're not. I spent over a decade in student ministry. I know that they wanna to listen to mom and dad, even though, yeah, they'll, they'll pretend. Students, were on to you, okay? We know, we know what's happening. But you have been called and you have the opportunity to invest beyond just your kids. Who is it else? Who else has God put you in your life? Who are you investing in? And then maybe, maybe if you don't have anyone on that list, or even if you do, I would encourage you to ask this question. This is the last one. Who could I invest in? Is there someone in your apartment? Is there someone down the street? Is there someone in your workplace, in your class? Is there someone around that God has given you an opportunity to have influence into? We've said before, leadership is influence. Inside your sphere of influence, who is it that God has called you to and and given you opportunity to invest in? I would encourage you to maybe take some time this week and to ask those questions and take stock of, yeah, what has happened and and who has done that and then who is God calling me to now? And that's what we see the people of God do. They move to this place of generosity. They're not just investing. It's not about me. How much can I learn? How much growth can I do? How big can my head get, right? It's how much can I invest and take what has been given to me and invest in that. And understanding how you've been invested into will help you to invest in others regardless of who's on that list. I know one person who has invested in you, and that is our Lord. That is our Savior, Jesus Christ. He came that we would know him, right? And he made himself known to us. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, he has poured out, he has invested, and he's given you that. And you're in a church of people that want to invest in one another. And so let's take this seriously. Let's do it together. Let's disciple one another, mature one another, raise each other up in the knowledge and understanding of God and who he is. That's the first norm, the new norm that we see. The second, we're gonna see in some verses that we haven't read yet. It's verses nine and 10. Let's read those now. Verse nine of chapter 18, it says, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them." Here's the second new norm for the people of God. It's this, it's the move from caution to confidence. God is inviting Paul, calling Paul, encouraging Paul to move from a place of caution to a place of confidence. So here's what we understand and learn about Paul in this situation maybe a new look for Paul that you hadn't considered before. Paul is terribly afraid. That word there that the Lord uses in this vision, he says to Paul, one night in a vision, do not be afraid. Literally, that means be afraid no more. So the understanding, which we can kind of under, like, see clearly, is that Paul is afraid. And I don't think it was just a little bit of fear. I think this is like a debilitating type fear. It's like a borderline, like, I'm not gonna make it sort of feel, because notice what he says. He says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Paul clearly is wrestling with, do I keep doing this? Should I just pack it up, throw in the towel, head back to Jerusalem? Like, what am I doing here? He's so afraid that he wants to stop. He wants to quit. He acknowledged this as much of this fear later when he wrote to the Corinthians, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verse 3, he writes to the church there in Corinth, this very church that he's ministering to, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. So later, Paul, writing to the church, he acknowledges, like, when I was there, I was afraid. I was full of trembling, like I couldn't go on. This is the place that the great apostle Paul is. And again, so many times I think we, put Paul in a different category. And we're like, well, that's Paul, right? But he was afraid just like you and I. We don't often think about Paul being afraid, but he struggled with the same things that you and I do. And again, I think that's just a reminder to see the way that God uses ordinary people. See, Paul was nothing without the equipping and calling of Christ on his life. He's just a guy, or as I like to say, he's just a dude, all right? He didn't always have this boldness that he needed. That's why uh, when he writes to the church in Ephesus, he's asking for prayer for it. Ephesians verse, uh, chapter six, verse 19, he says, and when you pray for me, pray also that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. He's like, when you pray for me, would you pray for boldness? Because I don't always have it. And so Paul's afraid. But notice, notice what happens here. Notice God's care and concern. These ver- I love these verses right here. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. So God's coming. He's speaking directly to Paul here. He says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Why? For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in the city who are my people. God meets him in his fear. I think so many times we think that our fear is a disqualifying characteristic. Fear is, in measure, can be a really healthy thing, right? If you are doing some yard work this coming weekend and you've got some sort of, you know, uh, equipment, lawn equipment that has like a sharp blade and is spinning f- quickly, there should be a healthy fear of that. That fear will keep you from doing something, putting your hand, putting your finger somewhere where it shouldn't be. But this fear was moving him to a place that he was cautious, he was stuck, he wasn't moving forward, and so God meets him there in this fear. Before looking at what God does to his fear, I think it's maybe helpful to look at what he doesn't do. Notice God doesn't come to him, sort of, you know, that, that parent tapping like foot, you know, like kind of the impatient foot or the kind of the wagging the finger. He's not scolding Paul in this place. He comes and he ministers to him as a loving, caring father. And he makes some promises, I think there's two parts to the promise that God has. Notice it. It says, I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. I think there's two parts of his promise. The first part of his promise is his presence. The second part, no one will harm you, no harm will come to you, is his protection. He promises Paul presence and protection. Let's start and look at that. Let's kind of unpack that presence for a second, because that's quite a statement. God says to him, he says, I am with you. What a statement. Now, what makes that statement so powerful is that everything to do with who is behind that I, like who's the one who's making that statement? Like if I'm with him and I'm like, hey, Paul, I'm here, man, I got you, right? That's not as reassuring as God coming to him and saying, I am with you. Let me kind of illustrate it this way. Uh, Some time ago, um, several months ago, we had someone kind of come into the church after the service was over And uh, there's just a few people kind of hanging around and and this person kind of came in and and sort of walked right up here and sat right here. And I could tell they were like kind of in a bad spot and um, look a little disheveled. uh, Like, you know, something was clearly going on and they sat right here and they were just sort of looking at the cross. I couldn't tell if they were praying or sort of muttering or what they were doing, but just didn't look great. And I'm like, man, I gotta go talk to this guy. I gotta figure out what's going on. And so I look around and scan uh, the room and um, thankfully there was... um, Uh, one of the guys still left, uh, had a history in, he's a federal um, agent in in law enforcement, um, had a history in uh, military background and security. And so he was, of course, my first choice to ask, hey, would you come and um, just kind of hang back and make sure nothing goes down, right? And um, I just, I want to talk to him and I have no idea what's, you know, does he have a weapon? Is he you know, is he stable? Like, what's what's kind of going on? And so he kind of came with, and and I sat down right next to him, and then um, uh, you know my um, kind of guardian sat like just a couple of chairs back. And I knew I asked the right guy because um, as I looked back, he started just kind of clearing the chairs and like making a path that he could like you know spring if he if he had to. And I was like, okay, good. This is I feel a whole lot more sort of safe in this. And here's the reality of the situation: I like all of you, all right. I, I enjoy talking to you. I like you know grabbing some coffee and and, and, and and hanging out. But I do not want all of you sitting in that chair, like watching my back at that moment. Some of you, yes. Most of you, no. Okay. You don't have what you need in that moment, what I'm kind of looking for in that time. And um, just to kind of wrap up the story, um, he ended up, he had been drinking pretty heavily and was not in a good spot. And so we um, uh, ended up uh, um, he was okay. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't dangerous or anything. And so we got him um, into a car and got him uh, to a hospital and, and, and tried to get him some help that he uh, desperately needed. Um, you know, you never know uh, kind of the place and the spot um, that people have walked through our doors. And some of you maybe walked through our doors in that place. But in that moment, I knew I needed some protection. I, needed, I knew I needed somebody with me. And who I wanted was someone who knew what they were doing, right? So that I is everything. Who is saying this to Paul? Well, Paul knows exactly who it is. I am with you. Paul knew his Old Testament. He knew who was making that statement. The the, the God that was making that statement is the same God that created the universe in which we live and dwell. The God that that was saying that statement is the same God that had called his people out of captivity and who had sent the plagues and showed his power over creation. The God that was making that statement is the same God that went before his people as the walls of Jericho fell. That God is the same God that that gave them victory as he gave them the land that he had promised them. That God is the same God that protected them even when they were in exile after sinning for generations and generations before God. And that God is the same God who had just sent his son, Jesus, to go to the cross for the payment, the penalty of sin, so that the world would have the opportunity to be reconciled, to receive forgiveness. And it's the same God that raised Jesus Christ from the grave. That God was the God, that was the Lord that was visiting him on that night and saying, I am with you. It is his presence. Not only that, not only did he know what God had done in the past like to others, he knew what God had done in his life He was able to recount and to look at and to say all the times that God had been with him in the beatings and in the the imprisonment and in all the danger and all the troubles and everything that had happened, God had been with him. He knew that. But that wasn't all that the promise was. It was also protection. Notice he says that no harm would come to him. No one's gonna attack you and no harm's gonna come to you. Why? What's God's reason for this promise? I love it. He says, for I have many in this city who are my people. I love that because God, from his vantage point, right, he can see all things that could be, all things that will be. And so he's looking down in the city of Corinth and he's like, I've got them and them and them and them and them and them and he and she and all of them. I have all of these people that I want to reconcile to myself and I'm gonna use you to share the good news of the gospel with all of them. And so because of all these many people in the city, I'm gonna protect you because there's a message that needs to go forth. And for 18 months, he was able to preach and no harm came to him while he was there. The specific that promise that Paul gave, that gave to Paul there was that no harm would come to him in that city. Now, he didn't say harm would never come again because in the coming years, more of the same, right? He ended up in, in other uh, bad spots. But here's the reality that you and I have not been promised a general protection from harm or pain, okay? This is not a promise that, that applies to all people at all times. This was a specific promise to Paul in this situation, See, we have to be reminded that God has not promised to keep us from sickness. God has not promised to keep us from heartache. God has not promised to keep us from physical harm. God has not even promised to keep us from an earthly death. But just the same, we have been promised protection from God. God loves and he protects his children. Here's the reality. The truth of the situation is this, is that God will protect you from everything that you need protection from. Do you believe that? God will protect you from everything that you need protection from. See, as a parent, I protect my kids from some things and other things I willingly choose not to protect them from so that they would learn. Let me give you an example. Just yesterday, uh, we had a candle going on the counter It was time to blow the candle out, and our youngest, Levi, he's four. Um, That candle was blown out, and then there's like a bunch of smoke. You know, as it kind of comes up, all the smoke's kind of coming up, and he thought it was fitting. He's like, you know what I should do right now? I should take my face and I should put it right there in that smoke. And I just watched him. I I, like it was in slow mo. I mean, he just like leans down, and he just like eyes open. He puts his face like right in the candle, and I was just I could have stopped him. But I chose, I'm like, no, he needs to learn. That's not what you do with a smoking candle. Like, what are you doing? And, and he like, he put his face right in there and he's like, Oh, you know, and he's like, starts to, I'm like, did that hurt, buddy? He's like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, you don't put your face in smoke. Like, what are you doing? Like, you need to learn this lesson now. Hopefully you'll never put your face in a candle again. Knowing him, he will. But like, this is a lesson that you need to learn. So I chose in that moment not to protect him from that, but for him to experience that little bit of discomfort so that he would be spared from a greater discomfort at another time. I think sometimes God allows us to go through some things for reasons that we may never understand. God wants to protect his children. He has the power to protect his children and he will protect his children from everything that they need protection from. The problem is, is that we have a different opinion on what we think we need protection from. And I don't have time and we we can't unpack all of that, but I think the reality is, is that we walk through some things that we don't understand why God, why did you not protect me from this? I don't understand this. Where was your protection here? Sometimes the reason that we walk through the things that we walk through is we've walked out of or we've stepped out of his protection that comes through his plan, right? We've said how many times when every time God says don't, what he's really saying is don't hurt yourself. And so in his plan, there is protection. In obedience of his instruction, there is protection. So when we step out of that, when we do the things that he says not to do, then we will find ourselves in places of pain and hurt. We are not protected. That that is his protection, is his his law and his instructions for us. He protects us in that. Like a loving father, he's trying to protect us. Other times, however, we are in his plan. We're fighting obediently. Those are the times that we maybe struggle with the most. We're like, God, I don't understand. I was doing everything right. In those times, we need to be called into a greater confidence and trust that he will use that. And so the question that I think this leads us to and that what he was really asking Paul is, hey, Paul, what is your security? Same question I would ask you. Where do you find your place of security? Is it in, is your confidence in some kind of measure of protection or place that you've put? Or is your confidence in the God of, who promises his protection and his presence in all things. See, we're called to move and leave this place of caution and move into a place of confidence in God and what he has done and what he is doing. And similarly, the third is very close to this second norm, but let me give you the third norm, it's this. I think we're called to move from the sidewalk to a tightrope. Kind of using a picture here, let me unpack it for you. But I think what God is saying to Paul, right here, is he's like, listen, Paul, I'm asking you to still be or get back on that tightrope. I know you want to get on that sidewalk, but, but, but there's more to be done here. See, I'm using this picture to sort of illustrate, I think, what we would often kind of default to, right? In the same way that, that um, you know, scarcity is kind of our default operating system. Comfort is often our all, like, default operating place. We like to be on sidewalks. We don't often like to be on tightropes. Physically, some of you are like, that's for sure me. Like if there's anything involving heights, like they you know, couldn't pay you enough to do that. I was uh, thinking about, um, we, were, we first got this church, we were doing some work on one of the work days and we were up on like the, the tall roof, kind of doing some stuff with the cross and there's people kind of coming and working or whatever. And one guy who's come to the church a couple times and um, he was coming to the work day and I saw him from the sidewalk and I sort of like, you know, yelled to him, like, hey, glad to see, you know, and like kind of got within earshot. And he like looked up, he saw me and he just turned around and like walked away. I was like, where are you going? You know, didn't, I didn't see him again the rest of the day. And I saw him like later and I was like, hey, where, where'd you go? And he's like, I was coming to work day, but then I got there and I saw you guys up on the roof and I was like, I ain't getting up there. And I was like, well, you didn't have to get up there. There's tons of stuff. He's like, I wasn't taking that chance. I didn't know what you were going to do, right? Like he was like out of there he's not even going to be around that, right? Some of us, this is the place, like we want to be in our place of comfort and we'll do anything that we can to protect that. I think the difference is we like we like sidewalks and we want to avoid the tight ropes but at times God is asking us to take greater risks than we're currently taking. It's amazing how like you know smaller and smaller surfaces can feel like more and more safe. I've shared before I did some construction in high school and college and I loved framing because you saw so much progress. So kind of framing a house, throwing up two by four walls was awesome, but it always came time to top plate the two by fours and are the walls, right? And so when you're up on like running around on these, these walls and trying to put like top plates on, you're kind of like just balancing on the, you know, the walls. Well, you'll be on the two by four inside walls. Then you'll step onto the two by six outside walls or load bearing walls. It feels like you're on a sidewalk. Like you're still, it's only two inches, but I'm telling you, that two inches is, is great. And uh, you get back on that and you're like, man, this is, I missed that two by six. I wanna get, then you get down and you're like, oh, this is the difference. See, I think sometimes we have this kind of misunderstanding of, of just like what we're <laughs> actually capable of, what, what is comfort, what is it we want. The wider, the more safe, the more comfortable it is. I'm using this word picture to sort of say, look at what God says to Paul here. He says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. He's saying, Paul, I'm asking you to get off that sidewalk and get onto the tightrope and trust me. At times, God asks us to take God-sized risks. Is there anything that you're taking a risk for in your life right now that requires the power of God to perform? See, I think for some of us, we like to do the things and arrange the things in our life that we can control, right, that we can do in our own strength and in our own understanding and in our own ability is everything that you're doing now in your life, let me ask it a different way, is everything that you're doing right now in your life something that you're perfectly capable of in and of your own strength? I believe that God wants us to take some of these God-sized risks from time to time. And he helps us in that. And some of you are like, man, I'm not ready to get on the tightrope. I don't think God asks us to just jump right on a typer. I think like that sidewalk can get smaller and smaller and smaller until it's just like a one little small path. And then eventually it's like more like a balance beam, right? And you're like, oh, I can't do a smile. Oh, I can do a balance beam. Like God is patient and, and gracious with us and he leaves us into that place of greater and greater trust. But what he's doing here is he's asking Paul to trust him and to take this step and to do that. See, I believe that we are called to do this in our life. We've done this together as a church, Early on, our first full-time hire, we did not have the salary kind of in place, but we felt like the Lord was asking us to do it. And so we hired and we said, we're like, listen, we have like most of your salary for the year figured out, but the church needs to grow or we need to find some other, like this needs to kind of happen. We sensed that God was doing it and he did, he provided. We stepped into that and we took on this building. We're like, man, are we doing that? But it was a God-sized risk. We did that when we did the food boxes and there's, I mean, I could go on in all these things of like all these God-sized risks that we take. I think as a church, we need to do at least, I don't know, three, four, five things that scare us every year together as a church. But I think you need to do that in your own life as well. Like there need to be some God-sized risks that you're taking. And I think sometimes we think of these things and we frame it only in the position of big major life decisions. But notice, this isn't a big major life decision. God's asking Paul to just be faithful in the little everyday things that he's doing. So I think a God-sized risk would be for us to take God as his word and to forgive others as he's called us to forgive. Is there someone in your life that needs forgiveness, that has harmed you, that has hurt you, that you're holding on and harboring bitterness toward them? See, the word of God would say that you are freed in your forgiveness of them. There's freedom that comes from that. That's a God-sized risk because what you're believing is you're trusting God's promise that when you release them from the debt that they owe you, that God's grace is gonna be sufficient for you and that you don't need to seek that out, that God, the God of justice, will. And there can be a God-sized risk in even forgiveness. Parents, moms, how hard is it to release your children into the world and to let them go off and to make some decisions and do that? Like we want to protect and to provide and to kind of put those parameters. But listen, God loves your children more than you ever could. That's a God-sized risk in allowing them to grow and to experience things and to make decisions, right? You point them, you raise them up, you train them in the way of the Lord and then you trust God and his providence and his leading in their life. See, there's things that I think God is asking us to do, not major, I mean, there might be some major decisions, but not just that. There's little things that we are called to do and trust in even these things. Let me ask you this, where in your life do you need the power of God to work for things that you are trusting God for? This is the place, this is the new norm that God is bringing us into as his followers, in a place of greater generosity, in a place of greater confidence, in a place of greater trust in him, trusting him for his working and for his leading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth of your word and Lord, for this truth that you've called us to. God, you are working. God, you are leading. And God, you are calling us to a greater place of confidence and security and trust in you and in you alone Lord, I ask that you would do this work in us. God, I pray that you would provide the security of your presence, God, of your protection that we need, that you would remind us of that. And Lord, as we step out in faith, God, as we trust you and trust the things that you've led us toward, God, trust your promises, God, trust the the, uh, direction that you've given us, God, that we would find you to be faithful. Lord, we trust you. We long to see you work. God, we long to see you lead. We ask that you would do this work. God, that you would bring us to this place, that you would transform us into the people of God that you would have us be. Lord, help us to that end. We ask in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.